Welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital, where private equity leaders open their playbooks to discuss today's trends. Hi, I'm Siu Kang Boon, co-head of Deckert's private equity practice. Welcome to a special episode of Committed Capital, where we'll be taking a deep dive into the results of our 2024 Global Private Equity Outlook, an annual report published by Decket alongside Merger Markets. This year in 2Q 2023, Merger Market on behalf of Decket surveyed 100 senior private equity professionals globally at firms with AUM of at least $100 billion, and which are not first-time funds. The results of the survey formed the basis of our 2024 Global Private Equity Outlook study. Today, we're here to talk about our market outlook and observations, and I'm delighted to be joined by my fellow co-heads of private equity, Marcus Bolsinger in New York, Chris Field in London, and my tax and private funds partner, Sabina Comey in Paris. We are delighted to have our special guests here today, senior private equity market leaders, starting with Brian Jenkins, Portfolio Management Group Head at Hamilton Lane, Mukesh Sharda, the co-founding managing partner of Capital Square Partners, Cecil Levy, the head of private debt at Tikahau Capital, and last but not least, Jeff Vogel, the managing partner and tech and uh, telecom head at Corp Square Capital Partners. Thank you for joining us today. I want to kick us off with opportunities as we end 2023 with the high interest rates and with the lower distributions is only exacerbated the downward global trend the market is largely recalibrated to its pre-pandemic levels after a couple of frenetic years in private equity now i want to start with you brian brian you're undoubtedly at one of the largest private funds investment firms with 854 billion us dollars in aum from your perspective, can you share with us a little bit about where you see the key opportunities? Of course. And you cited some of the headwinds. And I think often when we talk about those headwinds, the undertone is that this is the first time this asset class is, is facing headwinds. And that's obviously not the case. We all remember the financial crisis where fundraising went from six to seven hundred billion a year to less than three hundred. Fund contributions went from over 500 billion a year to about 200 and fund distributions dwindled to less than a hundred billion dollars a year. And so the talk around that time was like, it was like that Tiger King meme, like we'll never financially recover from this. But now you've seen private equity AUM for 10, 12 years. It's a $10 trillion. That's a fourfold increase from where we were at the end of the financial crisis. And even in a, a quiet year, right? LTM contributions for private equity funds have been about 930 billion, and there's been about 860 distributed to LP. So pretty good. So while in our view that the near-term outlook is neutral, right, that longer-term perspective leads us to a more positive long-term outlook. But we think private capital has proven itself to be more flexible in finding and adapting to new opportunities. Take the private credit space, for example. You've seen the bank retrenchment there and, and higher interest rates have, have provided some tailwinds that have benefited private debt. In the private equity market from 2016 through 2021, we really saw the large market private equity firms and venture capital growth equity firms driving returns. And, and Sabina had some really interesting observations in the survey about how those larger, well-established firms have benefited from that. I think some skeptics would suggest that uh, really those firms were just capturing growthy beta. I, I don't know that I fully agree with that. But I would suggest that the private equity opportunities, at least in the near term, are more likely to be in a lower middle market and more value-oriented in, in nature. That's fantastic. Thank you, Brian. And just, just off of that, Jeff, Brian talked about how resilient the industry is, and that's consistent with our report. Court Square has been in the private equity business for over 40 years, coincidentally, just like Eckert. And you've clearly seen the up cycles and the down cycles and done that successfully. How has Court Square navigated this? market. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me on and appreciate the relationship we've had with Deckard over those 40 years uh, as we both have grown. 
everything Brian said actually dovetails perfectly within the thoughts that we have and this question about adaptive planning within PE. And I think that's really going to be the key here. We have a chart we show our investors that shows Court Square, we've invested across eight presidential cycles, seven Fed funds rate cycles, six business cycles, and we've been able to consistently make money in each of those. And so m- much of our core investment philosophy over those several decades, it's remained stable. And it's our focus on US middle market profitably growing businesses, an area that Brian specifically just touched on. So we found time and time again, this part of the market's been the most resilient. But having said that, you have to be able to adapt to changing market conditions and be able to adapt that focus. I, I lead our technology investment, as, as you said, uh, up front. You know, historically, we've had tremendous success as early investors in sub-segments like semiconductors and software. Both of those markets, as an example, they've changed dramatically over time. Semis requiring scale above the mid-market and then software taking off and valuing its companies off of recurring revenue multiples. So we've actually been forced to pivot to more steady cash flow business models like tech services that price their growth at more modest valuations. And, and lastly, we've also evolved and we've had tremendous success backing founder and family and management-owned businesses. So over the last couple of funds, for example, uh, these deals have accounted for 75% of our transactions. And we've become the partner of choice for these founder-based businesses because of our track record of billing and scaling these businesses successfully. So our returns have been strong and consistent with the strategy. And not surprisingly, it's because of the close alignment that these founders have with us because they're rolling a big stake. So that's just you know a couple of examples of how we at Courtsquare have had to adapt in all these various cycles. And what you're going to find is whether it's a private equity firm or a credit fund, they're going to have to be able to be nimble and agile and adapting as well. Thank you, Jeff. And just moving to Mukesh, I think just off of what Jeff also said, you're in IT services, tech services, in revenue generative businesses, and you've been really successful. What's unique is that you work on transactions with a cross-border element covering Asia, specifically India and Southeast Asia. Sitting where you are, where do you think the market is and where is it heading? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Yukem. Uh, first of all, it's uh, great to be here on this. And again, value the relationship that we have had over the last uh, what, 10 years with Deckard. Um, in terms of where we are right now, we are obviously seeing a slowdown on capital deployment into China. And Asia and India have certainly been uh, beneficiary of that reallocation and investments away from China. At the same time, you see what has happened during the last several years uh, particularly during COVID, there haven't been any major exits in China. And as a result, investors have not received that capital back to be able to sort of redeploy. Chances are they probably might have redeployed it in China, but it's a fact that they haven't received capital and therefore, you know, they're reevaluating what their deployment is going to be. What we are also seeing in Asia is there is a flight to quality by a whole bunch of LPs across US, Europe, and Asia. And as a result, you see larger of the private equity firms, their ability to raise capital is a lot more uh, compared to smaller private equity funds. Uh, The high interest rate environment, one obviously can't ignore that. And as a result, I think the investor's expectation with regards to the returns that a private equity fund generates, it's, I believe, a lot higher than what it was uh, three, four years ago. We find pockets of opportunity while the valuations across the board still stay a little bit high and there has been a little bit of a lag compared to, you know, where the interest rate environment has been and the valuations tapering off. But I think we are able to find pockets of opportunity. And I think today we require more creativity in our deal structuring and finding the opportunities and bridging the valuations gap. And we are deploying those type of structures more now than we traditionally did in the past. Thank you, Mukesh. You talked about creativity. You also talked about returns. I want to move over to Cecile. Our report shows that a number of our respondents are trying to diversify their investment strategies to become more multi-strategy asset management firms and with its 41.4 billion euro AUM globally with four successful alternative asset management strategies. How have you leveraged that to create better returns for your investors? 
Well, uh, good uh, morning, good afternoon, all. Uh, first, very grateful to Deckard to be uh, invited. Thank you so much. Uh, and just to give some background on TKO and reason why, in a way, we are part of this uh, uh, large and growing alternative asset management market. Uh, TKO was founded now back 20 years ago by two entrepreneurs at that time um, with the view to create a diversified asset manager with a clear focus initially on private debt. So that was a kind of a vision early days because that was a time when private debt was not even identified as an asset class per se. And then gradually that was this uh, ambition and driven by entrepreneurship that's really part of the DNA. And that's how gradually TKO expanded with this uh, clear our today organization and expertise covering so real assets, meaning mainly real estate and uh, infrastructure, mainly in the US, private equity with some uh, dedicated vertical in related to uh, today we talk about a lot of energy transition, but that's a strategy which was built upon back in 2017 and same in aerospace uh, and cyber security so that's and uh, today also uh, agriculture regenerative agriculture uh, and uh, the capital market and then the initial setup which was around private debt which has become uh, of course over this uh, different cycle the real area of uh, development and I would say that one of the key maybe uh, development and ambition again on TKO was supported by this clear strategy which was to build this uh, asset manager supported by a very heavily capitalized balance sheet and that's maybe uh, also one of the reasons why very early day that was this view that diversification is key in and that you have now more and more this emergence of platform and that the uh, initial strategy in uh, the private equity namely was to be uh, one single fund has uh, today uh, been uh, spreading over the market and that there is a lot of synergies and uh, scalability looked after when you can combine uh, forces for uh, uh, address your clients being mainly the investors but also built a very strong ecosystem across different uh, asset classes and take advantage of this in really in-depth knowledge of companies and the economic environment. Now, that's clearly, clearly a visionary. I want to talk about another trend that is also pretty visionary and, and diverse. Sabina, you've been working on a lot of democratization of private funds, and it's become a very big feature in our outlook. If done successfully, Private funds can unlock a lot of capital, but what are the challenges in your view? I think, candidly, the first challenge is to understand what we mean by democratization, because everybody means different things. Do we mean selling to retail investors? Do we mean selling to high net worth? Do we mean selling to sophisticated and the, the super high net worth? So, so first of all, that's the first practical challenge is different people mean different things. Um, and I think then the the more inherent challenges, there's one which is the obvious one, which is the logistical one. We're trying to reach out to an untapped reservoir of, of people, of, of money. And so in, in order to scale up that offer and this opportunity, uh, the sponsors, the managers, the management company, whatever, they need to build the back office and to accommodate those changes. And they can either build the back office because they have the means to do that themselves, but they can also team up, and that's part of the debate here, team up with intermediaries. And those can be private banks, insurers, uh, people who have the uh, artificial intelligence tool or they develop their own tool. But that that's the logistical challenge. I think it's a challenge that will definitely be overcome, but that will also mean, you know, we, could, we talk about democratization in terms of who the investors are, but will the democratization be about the number of funds that can reach out a more democratized LP base, i.e. can smaller or medium-sized funds actually access that reservoir? That will really depend on who the intermediaries they can team up with or whether they can develop that back office. Very quickly, the other two ones are the regulatory hurdles. 
Uh, the U.S. has been, as usual, ahead of the curve here. But thank God, I would say, in Europe, the regulator um, has been making great advances with, sorry to use those terms, but LTAF, LTIF, which are, you know, the new regulation. It's important they're opening the door for this to become possible from a regulatory perspective. The last one is the allocation of these fee structures. So there is a huge debate out there as to what does it mean? Will it damage the fee structure? I personally don't understand what that means, so I'm, I'm opening it up for the discussion. But what is clear in terms of the fee structure is that there will have to be a different share, a sharing of the value. When you add intermediaries, when you add layers to the industry, the fee and hence the value will have to be shared differently. And that's probably why people say it will have an impact on the fee structure. That's fantastic. We clearly want to talk about it more, but not right now. We want to talk about take privates in a major reversal from our survey last year. Only 13% last year said they would take a look at take private transactions. But this year, 94% would look at transactions of this nature. I want to come to you, Marcus. You're working on a number of these transactions in the US. What do you think is the key contributing factors to this trend? Thank you, Sukam. And we were surprised, right? We were waiting for a wave of go privates to happen. But the response that in all regions, almost everybody uh, is considering engaging in a take private was, uh, was a big surprise. And then according to Perkin, as of October 25th, there were already 96 global public to private deals announced which is higher than the annual total in every year for the last 16 years. So the wave is definitely here. If you drill in deeper and look at those deals, the overall deal size is getting smaller. And the aggregate value of those 96 transactions was only uh, $118 billion. You ask what the key drivers are. I think there are three in my mind. One is valuation divergence. Right? Not all public companies' valuations have soared as the Magnificent Seven, right? Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Nvidia, and Tesla. The second one is boomerang stocks, right? Stocks of companies that have been taken uh, public in the last couple of years, often with private equity sponsors being the majority shareholder at the time of the IPO. Those stocks have seen their valuation falls. And right, a few examples, Sinvin, EQT, and Silver Lake uh, either have bought back or at least made offers to buy back companies that they previously owned, Synlab, Suze, and Endeavor. So I think that's the second one, boomerang stocks. And then the third is price arbitrage. When the values, not of the Magnificent Seven, but of the uh, companies that do, did not so well in the public market came down. The private valuations at least appear to be still more elevated. So there was a price arbitrage and people were looking at that and private equity, right? Saw value where public markets still saw uncertainty and I think found attractive targets, hence the 96 deals that have been, uh, have been pursued. As to the challenges... There's a lot of additional regulatory complexity and public scrutiny of public deals. So a well-thought-out and robust process is an absolute necessity, including hiring advisors early. And then in the U.S. in particular, stockholder plaintiffs has always targeted those deals and brought claims, but recently secured significant damages awards in Delaware not against the seller or the seller's board, but against the acquirers in those take privates for uh, aiding and abetting claims. So I think that's something else to watch out for and making sure that you tackle from the outset with a robust process. Fantastic. Thank you, Marcus. And this is very close to heart for Mukesh, who is in the middle of a take private transaction in the US. In fact, I think it has been announced, Mukesh. Can you tell us a little bit more, maybe the rationale for why you're doing that deal? So, yes, uh, I am in the middle of a take private transaction in US and uh, the transaction has been announced. Uh, I cannot at this stage talk about specifics for that specific transaction, but I can talk in general what our rationale for any of these take private situations would be. And that can give you a flavor in terms of how we guys think. Uh, so in general, 
it's great to have a listed entity on most of the major exchange, right? It adds a lot of visibility. It helps you from a client perspective. It increases the profile of the company, which helps you to hire better quality talent. And overall, when the general visibility is higher, your revenue growth can be accelerated. Uh, and there are a variety of other fringe benefits to that. Now, there are situations in sometimes, right, when all of these benefits don't work out very well and you have this overriding thing in terms of you get measured based on quarter on quarter performance, what result and growth do you show every quarter and the next quarter and the next quarter. And these days, particularly when you're looking at technology companies or technology services companies, which is impacted by the overall high interest rate environment, there is also this overhang with regards to Gen AI, and uh, there is large language models, LLMs, which kind of is going to impact your business at some point. Uh, therefore, you may need to incur more CapEx and more OPEX, right? Operating expenses would increase, your capital expenses would increase. And as a result, you may face a little bit of a dip in several quarters, and the market penalizes you for it, right? You are better off from a company perspective if you were not measured on a quarter and quarter performance and you are given the required time. In this case, it could be, say, um, I mean, in some cases, it could be 12 months, it could be 18 months, it could be 24 months and turn the company around by making these type of investments. And that is uh, one very big uh, rationale for a lot of take private situations. The second argument would be if in case you are trying to do any inorganic activity, right, you want to do something strategic, you want to do an M&A, you need to raise capital for that. And you are limited by what your stock price is. And, you know, most of the investment bankers will tell you that, okay, first of all, there's a long process for raising capital. Second, whatever your current stock price is, you'll have to issue shares at a discount. And, you know, your current price may not be reflective of the intrinsic value or the price at which the existing shareholders may want to get diluted. So you get these challenges, uh, you know, at the stage of the growth of the company. So it depends at what stage of growth you are. It makes a lot of sense to stay listed if you're a company which is at a state where, you know, your quarter and quarter performance is stable and, you know, it's on a growth trajectory. But if you need to change or fix any of these things, then probably a take pride may be in the better interest of the company. That's fantastic, Mukesh. And Chris, you have done a lot of these in Europe as well. Do you agree with what Marcus and Mukesh has said in terms of the European market or are there nuances in terms of the opportunities and challenges there? Yeah, let, let me start by saying that Marcus and Rakesh have stolen my thunder. So um, I'll also say that I'm going to address this, the, the answer to this question primarily from a UK perspective, not only because that's my home geography, but also because although there isn't actually a single market for takeovers in Europe, um, the EU takeovers directive, which, which regulates takeovers at least at a macro level and was adopted back in 2004, was very much modelled on the UK's takeover code. So there is similarities to the regulatory approach across Europe. And, and I would say that is the single biggest challenge. It's the nature and extent of that regulatory overlay, um, which can be particularly challenging for US bidders coming into Europe, given how different it is to the US approach. Um, although the end result is the same, the overall philosophy and the legal process as to how you actually get to that end result it can be very foreign to their past experience. Um, for example, there are limited to no deal protections, that there are severe limits on target protection mechanisms that can be used, and, and of course, the almost complete absence of strategic litigation that Marcus was referencing earlier. But I think conversely, on the opportunities side, it's, it's very much the same as both Marcus and Mikesh were discussing in the context of the U.S., um, I'd say with, with one additional opportunity in the case of some foreign bidders coming into Europe, and, and that's the ability to exploit an exchange rate differential. That's not only in terms of the currency of the purchase price you're paying, but also between the target's traded currency and in some cases its underlying operational currency. Thank you very much, Chris. Wonderful. And I want to talk about private credit for a moment. It's receiving a lot of spotlight in the market. I'm not surprised by that because there's $1.5 trillion in the market. And depending on the publication you read, it is 
expected to go up to between 2.8 trillion to 3.5 trillion by 2028. And so it's not a surprise that 78% of our respondents say they do already use private credit. And of those who do not yet, 35% say they are likely to use more private credit next year. And of the multi-asset strategy funds who do not yet have a private credit on their platform, 73% say they are likely to do that next year. So it is also no surprise that I go to Cecil first because as head of private debt at Tikahau Capital. And I'm curious as to how you see this trend playing out. Are there any risks you see as the market starts heating up? Yeah, and this is today a huge market growing extremely fast. Just one step back to say that it has been a market which started on the back of being under the water, under the radar, uh, and gradually has been, as you mentioned, under the spotlight and volume are talking by for themselves that it has become now mainstream. And I will insist that really that the key takeaway that it's a long-term trend, it's uh, not just uh, uh, one, uh, well, uh, uh, the outcome of potential issues, but today it's uh, long-lasting and related to one, its uh, intrinsic qualities and features of the private debt mainly driven by the fact that it's uh, flexible, it's offering a reliable source of financing and also uh, can in the environment be uh, seen as a confidential way to secure binding source of financing. And also the uh, second aspect is related to the fact that it's actually taking advantage of the overall landscape, meaning that it's taking clearly market share from bank retrenching globally. And that's a worldwide trend, mainly driven uh, and most likely by regulatory reasons, but also by, again, coming back to the uh, really features of this private debt, the way we operate being a one-stop solution, very easy, and the close partnership with companies, corporate, uh, this trend, and that's what's maybe very interesting to uh, uh, today uh, highlight and insist upon, that it started in terms of volume mainly driven by direct lending, so related to the LBO financing in the backing private equity type of uh, solutions and now that has expanded in the way to operate with private debt funds in other area outside of the pure uh, LBO world, uh, also related to more asset back type of situation. Also, and that's mentioned in the Deckard's report, the emergence of uh, the financing related to uh, what we call the ARR. That's also a big trend and that's allowed by the fact that these private debt funds are very eager to understand business model of companies and also important to insist that outside of this corporate world, we have seen more and more actually uh, emergence of private debt ways to operate for infrastructure and real estate. Uh, may just quickly on the potential risk, uh, there has been some uh, comments about the fact that the flip side of being under the spotlight and the golden age of the private debt could come as a bubble. We do see this as a, again, secular trend and very long lasting trend. And even if volume driven, there will be more and more potentially uh, issues uh, globally. The trend is extremely positive. And to conclude, uh, the risk return proposal for investors is extremely attractive, getting 10 to 13% potentially today on the first lean type of facility. This is, of course, very, very uh, interesting from an LP investor perspective. Thank you, Cecil. And, and, and Jeff, Cecil talks about private debt being reliable and flexible and confidential. To what degree does Corp Square leverage, pun intended, private credit in your transactions? Yeah, so look, a lot of the points that Cecile made are, are very, uh, they ring true to us. Uh, you know, as a reminder, I mentioned before, 
you know, where we focus at Court Square is in the middle market. And, you know, there especially is where you're seeing a lot of this private lending continue to grow. So as a background, 80% of our deals are funded through the private credit markets. And obviously the remaining are through the traditional syndicated loan market. But you know, our use of private lending has, has absolutely grown with the influx of capital into that space. And, and we and our companies are beneficiaries of you know, the sophistication of these providers and their willingness to lend to the mid-market PE companies, but building really a relationship with us. And so it's just far more flexible capital, as Cecile had mentioned before, when you've built that relationship. And moreover, we recently added a head of debt capital markets you know, from that specific part of the world in an effort to build better execution for us across our portfolio. And it's already proving to be you know, e- extremely valuable. You know, not surprisingly, as we start to grow our businesses you know, to the higher end of the middle market or larger, when we grow them above 100 million of EBITDA, for example, those are the ones that are more reliant still upon that larger syndicated uh, debt market. But having said that, you know, we're continually surprised at the size and scale that these direct lenders are able to play even at the larger end of that market as well. So I, I think to Cecile's point, you're going to continue to see this trend build uh, as we go forward. There is hope for this trend. And, and, and Mukesh, there's traditionally been an underpenetration of private credit in Asia, but there is clear evidence that there is rising demand for it. And at Capital Square, you are a user, an experienced user of private credit for your deals. How is the appetite from lenders for deals of your nature? Yes, you are absolutely right. We are a user of credit and we are a user of private credit. And we have used private credit to fund a number of transactions. In fact, I'm currently in live discussion with a number of private credit lenders and also bank and institutional lenders for two of my deals. Uh, one is a larger one, which uh, is shy of half a billion. And uh, the market in Asia has been very interesting in the last three, four years. And the number of players with appetite to provide private credit, it is staggering now. I mean, and it has moved quite a bit from where it was three to four years ago. Having said that, so there are three trends which I noticed. Number one is there is sufficient liquidity in the market to be able to raise debt from a private credit or from bank and institutions. Number two is the quantum of the debt which was available to you about three to four years ago versus what is available now, there is a significant reduction in what is available now. And I think the reduction is fair. Because if you see what the interest costs were earlier versus what the interest costs are now, right, it is very different. And therefore, we are actually seeing a reduction in debt to EBITDA uh, ratios by almost a turn. So earlier, if the bank was lending you or the private credit was lending you at four, four and a half, now you would see that between three to three and a half. So there has been a significant reduction uh, in that. The other trend that we are seeing is a few banks are also getting into the private credit, which was completely unheard of uh, in Asia about four to five years ago. And these banks are developing appetite to be able to give you a hybrid kind of a solution where there is a traditional term loan bank and then there is a private credit piece of it. And it's given in the same package. So as you mentioned, like a one-stop shop, uh, we see that happening more. That's fantastic, Mukesh. I want to talk about exits now and this is a buzzword we keep hearing about gp-led secondaries and continuation funds which has been very popular particularly post-pandemic and in fact 50 percent of our respondents say they see this as an important source of alternative liquidity liquidity solution especially in a market of our nature brian as an lp can you give us your take on why this trend is leading the way and what is interesting to you as an LP? Yeah, so I think the reason it's getting traction amongst GPs is obvious. It it lets you hang on to assets that you really like and there are long-run economic benefits that that accrue with that. For LPs, it provides some optionality and all of our corporate finance textbooks teach us that optionality has some value, especially when it's attached to, to liquidity. And I think that's complemented by the development of structures where all of the counterparties that are active in these deals get a sense that they're getting a a fair value and a fair deal. And this is still a relatively youthful market. It went from basically zero to 50, $60 billion a year in the course of 24 months. 
but the early signs on the performance of these assets is is encouraging. And so in terms of you know innovative structures, this is one of the more innovative corners of private markets. There are a lot of interesting things going on here. We've seen strip sales pieces of assets, often coupled with you know, fund level preferred equity type structures with some interesting distribution waterfalls that might provide a little more downside protection for the buyer and a little bit of, of upside for, for the seller. Uh, collateralized fund obligations sort of fit within this, but those are really only workable if you have very large, diversified, high-quality portfolios, but there's a few of those that have traded recently. NAV loans, which Cecile touched on, uh, are a hot topic, and I know your survey indicates about a third of the respondents are, are using private credit to provide those facilities, potentially as sort of an advance for distributions, uh, which is an interesting use case there. And then finally, if you're a, a GP where you're finding fundraising a, a bit harder today and, and your existing fund might be a low on dry powder, these can be a useful source of, of dry powder. You can get creative with concepts like selling a strip of assets that can create a recyclable distribution that can be used to fund new investment. Or if you can find a, a large LP that it's willing to sell to a secondary buyer that can provide a chunk of unfunded commitment or, or staple with another primary. And that can be a very attractive structure. So some really interesting stuff going on in that market. I just want to jump in there for a split second, because what Brian said is extremely important today for the debate we're having. And a very clear indicator that this is an extremely active piece of the market is that the SEC regulator has come out with very clear and strict guidelines to make sure that what is becoming a very active market is... Um, is regulated. I would say it this way, the fairness, all the debates about the fairness opinions. And we actually, as lawyers at Decker, think this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing because this allows the market to develop in a healthy manner and to reassure the people that are worried about these trends. These trends can be healthy if you know they're done properly and with good advisors and according to the, the right regulations. And that was very good because I was going to say, I think because it's a nascent industry for a while and it's so useful, there is the development of all of these creative techniques, which Brian touched on. And in fact, earlier this year, late last year, we had the privilege of working with Capital Square Partners on a very innovative secondaries transaction out here where they merged, Capital Square Partners merged with Basel Technology Partners to create a $700 million continuation fund. It was arguably the first of its kind in Asia at the time and probably still is. Mukesh, tell us what made this structure so attractive to you? Yeah, so first of all, uh, Shikam, thanks to the Decker team so with their invaluable help in closing this, what I would call a highly, highly complex deal in one of its unique kind. And uh, secondaries is a good flavor. And I think we are one of the big beneficiaries of the secondary deal constructs that have come up in the market now. These type of deal constructs were not available several years ago. Basically, the question that we ask ourselves is, when we are selling an asset, are we walking away from a major value creation opportunity? And in the past, we have let go of assets and we have sold assets where we knew there was big value creation opportunities because obviously DPI is very important and you need to show returns. And uh, I can give you one example where we had exited an asset to which we had bought in for uh, about $50 million. We exited at 200 and we exited to a very large private equity fund who in about two and a half years time sold the asset again for about a billion and a half. Right. And of course, there was multiple things that happened. They were both on acquisitions and all that. But these type of value creation opportunities, we see it in our current portfolio, right, where we have bought assets and the maturity cycle of these assets take a little bit more time to create the value and secondary opportunities where we are able to raise a secondary and a continuation fund does help us to sort of unlock that value. And I think that's been the biggest driver. Yeah, and it's particularly useful in Asia because of the gestation period of the type of companies that we invest in out here. I want to talk about another form of creative way in which GPs receive liquidity, um, GP stake divestitures. And 59% of our respondents this year say they intend to make a GP stake divestiture over the next 24 months. Brian, I'm curious as to whether you agree with that 
trend? And is there a particular profile of GP you think best fits these types of transactions? Yeah, maybe I'll start with with the latter question. And I think there's very generally two types of GPs that are well suited for these types of transactions. The first, which is the lion's share of the volume in the market is successful upper mid-market managers, perhaps around four or five billion dollars in last fund size that are at an inflection point in their development. Growth is usually the primary motivator for these. And I think your survey data confirms that, though I think your survey also shows nearly half of the respondents will use some of the proceeds for founder liquidity. The second group is kind of fledgling managers. So these are first or second time funds at the smaller end of the market that might need help funding GP stakes or, or hiring new talent. Oftentimes, those transactions can be compared with a commitment to a fund. Right, so you're getting a fund investment and maybe a share in the economics of the fund as well as a stake in the management company. And th- those require different capabilities, right? Those are two different kinds of investments, two different types of diligence processes. In terms of the outlook, I mean, look, I think the performance of both of these things has been good for both sides, right? It's been good for the GPs. It's been good for the investors buying these stakes. GPs have gotten capital for growth initiatives and most of the analysis we've done would suggest that they are using that capital for growth, adding new product lines, raising larger funds. And for those investing, the, the performance has been been pretty good and they've gotten some liquidity. But you know, think about the conditions that accommodated that, right? You had significant steps up in fund sizing over the last five to seven years, the ability for credible GPs to raise a lot of new product lines, you had strong equity performance that it sort of in aggregate has generated carry in excess of, of what most underwriting expectations would be. And so I think the outlook is maybe a little more neutral over the next few years than it was over the preceding five years. But these transactions certainly aren't going away. Yeah, and that's interesting. At least in APAC, we're also seeing LPs using this as a way to get their exposure into Asian assets as well. And Sabina, you do a lot of these deals in Paris as well for your clients. Is there any benefits that Brian didn't talk about that you wanted to highlight? And just to round it out, what about challenges? Yeah, no, I I certainly don't want to repeat what Brian said. What I would just say is that I would look at it from the other side of the lens, but come to the same conclusions, which is it depends who the GP staker is. Is it a fund whose business it is to buy the GP stakes, i.e. to take minority stakes in management companies and what is their driver and what is the interest for the sponsor who is being invested into, let's call it this way. And then there is the strategic buyer, uh, which can be one large fund that wants to enter a given market and thinks the best way to do that is precisely to go via an existing GP in a local market. That happens very often in Europe. I mean, American GPs sometimes think that a way to access the European market is probably easier to make an investment, I'd rather talk about investment than divestments um, into into a sponsor. So I think those are two different uh, ways of looking at it, but it's exactly for the same reasons Brian mentioned, which is getting new fuel in the machine, i.e. new cash, allow larger GP stakes. We know, uh, GP commits, sorry, we know that, you know, going forward, funds will ask for larger GP commits, so it funds the GP commit. I also want to make sure we don't forget the carried interest. There is a a very important piece here of destruction, which is, you know, what happens with the carried interest. And this brings me to the, my last point, which is the alignment of interest. The challenges are make sure the LPs understand why this is happening, why this partnership, hopefully it is a partnership, is taking place. Because that's where you will, you know, you will make sure the alignment is happening. And here for the first time, instead of talking just about GP and LP alignment, we're talking about a tripartite alignment. You need the GP staker, the existing GP and the investors to be aligned in the economics, but not not only on the governance. So there's what you can and cannot do from a regulatory perspective, but there will be very fine tuning on the governance rights that you will be negotiating between the GP staker and the the existing sponsor. I'll, I'll stop here. That's fantastic, Sabina. Now I want to talk about co-investments. LPs have demonstrated an increasing mandate and in fact appetite for co-investments. Jeff, I want to ask you, how has CourtSquare adapted to this? And, in, and indeed, we know the obvious benefits and reasons for it, but what are the risks that both LPs and GPs are learning? Yeah, sure. No, it, this absolutely has been a trend that's been building the last 
five plus years, five, even 10 years. Uh, and historically at Court Square, we were only opportunistic with our co-invest activity. And in reality, we, we largely avoided it because we felt it created conflicts of interest amongst the LPs as to who you provide the co-invest opportunities to. Uh, however, a few years ago, we surveyed our, our LP base, uh, specifically about co-invest, and we did a complete change once we understood the prioritized importance of it in their strategy. So we then, after learning of that, we solicited advice from our LPs that were premier like secondary funds and professional co-investors, and we've since built a programmatic approach to our co-invest program that ensures we go out to all LPs, both large and small, that have created uh, co-invest as their priority. And all told, we've syndicated over a billion dollars of equity co-invest over the last two years alone. And so it's been quite dramatic for us. You know, our LPs certainly are happy because of that. But you know, you asked earlier, the benefits are clear. You know, if it's an existing LP, they typically aren't paying a management fee or a carry on that. So it's it's very powerful for them. But there are real challenges to them as well. Not all LPs have the ability to build out a direct investment uh, program. And, and there is aspects of risk that they're now taking that, that uh, you know, they have to have the right sort of portfolio diversification to be able to handle that. So, so that's the risks and the benefits for the LPs, but it absolutely has, has benefits, you know, to, to us as, as a GP. Now, clearly we're investing dollars now that aren't generating those fees. So that's sort of the, the double-edged sword there. But, uh, you know, for us, we're building a, a deeper rapport with our LPs. We're increasing the transparency with them. And it's opened our aperture to completing deals that may still fit firmly within a sweet spot of a court square deal, but otherwise wouldn't have been possible because of capital constraints. And so that can either happen at entry up front for a new investment or for add-on capital over time. And Jeff talks about the challenges for LP. So Brian, I'd like you to jump in a little bit about how you think the process can be improved so that LPs can run this process more efficiently. Yeah, so I, I think it, it's a formula that sounds simple, but is always more difficult in practice. And it, it's three things. It's LPs need to know what exposures they want. They need to have a responsive process and to be a communicative partner to the GP that they're working with. Right. So Jeff talked about risk, right? The risk profile of a deal is much different than the risk profile of the funds LPs are typically invested in. And, and and Jeff is managing that risk appropriately when he builds a portfolio of deals. But a lot of LPs aren't used to thinking about the world that way, right? So knowing what types of deals you want, what risk exposures you're willing to take is really important. You need to have a portfolio construction plan so you can give a quick no if something doesn't fit that plan. O on having a process, right? You need to have the ability to get IC or stakeholder approval in just a week or two if necessary. These deals move very fast and the timelines for diligence for a deal are just much different than the timelines for diligence for, for a fund. And so you need to have some sort of experienced dedicated team that can synthesize all of the data the GP is, is making available um, very quickly and efficiently, right? We don't want to be calling up Jeff's team every hour, asking them for information that's sitting in the data room, right? And then finally, on the communication piece, it's, it's communicating early, often, and clearly, right? How much discretionary capital do you have available and how much can you commit to this type of deal, right? Highlighting any potential gating issues on deals up front. So again, you can give a quick no if you can't get comfortable with what some of the responses are. But I think the worst thing you can do is to get drawn too far into a process that you probably should have withdrawn from early on. Yeah, that makes sense. It's great practical advice. Thank you, Brian. And Mukesh, I know you have also been very successful in working with co-investors. You have co-investors in your transactions. What is the current appetite of co-investors for the types of deals that you're looking at at the moment? Yeah, so uh, we've always been uh, pretty heavy on the co-invest side, and we do offer a lot of opportunities in our deals to our LPs for co-invest. And in fact, we are in a Currently, middle of two deal situations where one is a larger co-invest where we actually retain the bulge bracket placement advisor to help us with the co-invest. And uh, I think uh, Brian hit it on the head in terms of what it takes to sort of complete a co-invest. And the teams need to be set up. It's a very, very fast timeline. You are working on the deal front and you're working with the LPs that simultaneously to raise the co-invest. And there's a whole bunch of diligence requirements which are there. I believe the appetite is strong right now. But in terms of converting LPs, 
uh, investors to come into the deals, right, with all the diligence requirements and everything sorted out. That is a process that takes time and one has to be very efficient and learn how to get early signs, you know, and early communication is the key, you know, if in case we know that somebody is going to be able to come in or somebody is not able to come in. And it is a process that we think takes about uh, four to eight weeks as a minimum. I want to now then talk about buy-in bills. Add-ons has been taking a bigger and bigger share of the buy-up activity over the past decade, just in the first three quarters of this year alone. Add-ons have taken on 76% of the global PE activity. That's an increase from 59% in 2013. Jeff, could you tell us a little bit more about CourtSquare's buy and build philosophy? Have you seen yeah. add-ons, Abs- risk portfolio risks? Absolutely. Maybe taking a step back. First, I'll say buy and build is really just one of many parts of an investment philosophy for us at CourtSquare. We're trying to maximize all levers to grow EBITDA. So first is top line organic growth. Second is margin expansion. And that could come from a whole variety of of areas. And then lastly would be scale through M&A. On average, our companies buy roughly two to three businesses from an add-on perspective during our hold. But the reality is some of our companies may not do a single deal and others may buy 10 to 20 companies. And so... For those pursuing Ebene, it absolutely has a positive effect uh, in, in de-risking and scaling the business to your question. Um, you know, as an example, just to put some numbers behind it, our recent fund on average was created an EBITDA multiple of approximately 12 times, but all the add-ons for that portfolio were completed an average of six times. And so just by that math alone, you see how accretive the MA strategy is. You know, but most importantly, it's an imperative that MA is always strategic to the business. We spend a great deal of time planning for these exits, sculpting M&A path to enhance the value of the business, but that involves upfront deal selection and prioritization, deal integration, and then post-integration plan that ensures each M&A transaction is additive to the financial and growth profile of the business. So you know, we use this term, but we don't invest in aggregators of businesses, we back strategic integrators. And so that's what's important to ensure the long-term growth lowers the risk profile to your question and ultimately leading to a successful exit to either a strategic or a, a future PE investor. Yeah, it's, the, the, the benefits are clear. It is also not easy to execute. That's why we need people like you to do it. But the other thing that our respondents are seeing is a key challenge with these deals is to actually put enough money together for it, including from debt platforms. So still being um, head of at Tika How, what do you think of that? Yeah, just to uh, echo what Jeff just mentioned, indeed, that has been one of the key driver recently in terms of volume of transactions that private debt funds have uh, incurred in uh, since 2022, especially that we have been backing those uh, M&A platform. We call them uh, indeed and uh, not aggregator, but and that has been uh, one of the main reasons for the private equity sponsor backing those uh, platform and the management team to rely on such flexible and easy to implement type of financing. And precisely, we have seen many situations where we start quite backing small size transactions and then gradually over years uh, with this M&A build-up strategy, we will have this add-on and that's part of the features that has been implementing in those uh, documentation where we have this acquisition facility in place. They are either committed or accordion style and uh, uh, this has been a key driver and maybe just to share, I think that uh, that was in 2023, uh, one third of our uh, transactions or deployment uh, actually so supporting existing uh, portfolio company and for us in a way it's uh, easier because we know already is the company the management team and that's a great way for us to allocate and to continue and to build those champions uh, taking advantage of the consolidation trend in the industry and that has been also in a way a mitigant to uh, 
lower uh, exit activity or lower new transactions, uh, whereby uh, the PE fund were uh, looking to create more value added to their uh, portfolio company and we have been exactly there to support and to provide this uh, very flexible uh, source of financing much easier than to operate with a large pool of bankers. Thank you, Cecil. And we're running out of time. So I wanted to invite all panelists to share their view about 2024 in 30 seconds or less. Let's start with you, Mukesh. Yeah, looking forward to the year. I think it's going to be a very exciting year. I think we have a very strong deal pipeline to sort of look at and uh, we have money to deploy. And I think uh, hopefully the valuations will either come down a bit or we would be able to sort of bridge the gap through structures. Thank you, Mukesh. Jeff? Yeah, I'll echo uh, Mukesh's comments there. The, the pipeline, just because transaction count in 2023 has been down so dramatically, the, the pipeline for deals that we are anticipating and that folks are telling us are coming to market both externally and even with our own portfolio is pretty significant. So uh, to the extent that there's continued, I think what the market's just looking for is continued stability. Even if it's at higher interest rates, lower volatility overall, I think will start to lead to significant uh, transaction count in 2024. So, you know, look, we're cautiously optimistic. So, you know, knock on wood here so far, so good into what we're thinking about for 2024. Fantastic, Jeff. Cecil? Yeah, I would say for 24, we are very uh, optimistic in the sense that today all the uh, headwind uh, and factors have been taken into account. And so basically companies are, we are seeing much uh, sounder, better uh, balanced type of uh, structures with less leverage. So that's much more appealing. And again, from a risk reward perspective, it's much more uh, positive today and maybe just a quick comment that liquidity has come back as a main concern and that has been really important for us to monitor and to make sure that uh, all company management teams are very well aware that they need to focus on their cash flow generation and so globally we do see that the uh, global uh, environment is uh, taking into account uh, these difficult, challenging macro uh, well, factors and opening uh, well, a new page with, uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, better structured type of uh, transactions. Thank you. So, so Brian? Yeah, so we started talking about the headwind, so I guess I'll come back and end there as well. I think sometimes a, a period of turbulence is, is a good time to do some soul searching on, on what you want and what your strengths are and make adjustments to your plans accordingly. And I think that goes for both LPs and GPs. For LPs, it's what risk exposures do you want in your private market portfolio and what relationships are giving those risk exposures to you. And then on the GP side, it's a lot harder in this market to be everything or have a product for every LP. It's just a lot tougher to raise money. So what are your strengths and your differentiators and, and to focus on amplifying those? Fantastic. Thank you, Brian. Marcus. Thank you. I think I'm echoing what Brian and Jeff said in their opening remarks and Cecil just said in their closing remarks. I think the private equity industry will continue to adapt and advance on its path that we have seen evolve in the 40 years since Deckard has started advising private equity investors. Um, I think financial structuring, maximizing leverage have had their days and the coming year and years will be defined by operational improvements of portfolio companies. What do I mean by that? Companies will be focused on optimizing processes, enhancing the supply chains and rationalizing the cost structure where possible with the help of technology uh, while also focusing on growth. I think mostly organic and with some selected add-on acquisitions. Great. Sabina? This is the time for Chris. I just say lack, we, we heard lack of liquidity. I hear need for agility. Need for agility. I hear smart and efficient lawyers and tax structuring because I can't help it. I'm the tax lawyer on the call. And the best. Chris? So I'd say, firstly, um, all of the predictions that we've made in our report will obviously all come to pass. So that's a given. Um, 
more generally, assuming there are no unexpected occurrences and, and there is lots of opportunity for that next year, um, particularly on the geopolitical front, but, but assuming no unexpected occurrences, then, then I echo what's been said previously, which is a continued pickup in deal activity as investors begin to adjust to this new era of um, relatively elevated rates. I guess I'll end with myself. Um, everything that's been said earlier, I won't repeat. Maybe I'll say something about Asia. I think for a long time, people have looked at Asia as the beacon of hope. And so ending this on a positive note, there's been a number of markets in Asia that's outperformed in the last year. And some people believe that two of the major superpowers in the future could come from Asia. So hopefully Asia becomes the beacon of hope, continues to be. And with that, I thank everyone for your time. And I thank our audience for your time with us as well. Thank you for listening to Deckert's Committed Capital. Please subscribe and for more information, visit Deckert.com.